Welcome back, everyone. Uh, today, I have a very exciting guest. Um, this is the person that I think really got me into podcasts in the first place and uh, got me listening to podcasts. So without this person, I probably wouldn't be doing this. Uh, this is um, Dr. Gregory Johnson. Greg, how are you? I'm good, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. So Greg graduated from the um, UVM neuroscience uh, PhD program. Uh, what is it about two years ago, two and a half? It was about a year and a half ago. That's okay, only a year and a half. Yeah. All right, so um, I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about your transition coming out of grad school. And um, I know you you stayed on as a postdoc for about six months and then you, uh, you found a job and went on. Yep. I want you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to finish fairly quickly. Um, I think most of what that was, was happening to end up on a project in my graduate work that um, had a large effect size. And when you have a large effect size, you can play with that effect and, um, and come up with data quickly that is something that's publishable. So I don't really necessarily um, attribute any of that to any like outstanding work ethic on my end, um, much more just that uh, I got I got kind of lucky and I had a really supportive um, um, boss in, uh, in John Pamick. So uh, it was a great experience. And, and John was, uh, you know, as a lab, we were lucky enough to have full funding um, from a, uh, you know, National Institute of Health R01 grant that he kept me on as a postdoc for, yeah, I think about four months after I defended my dissertation. Um, and then when I, I left, I, I left to join a consulting firm uh, just outside of Boston um, that works with sort of startup biotech companies that are um, just trying to like get through the, um, get their first product through clinical trials. Um, so it was kind of more on the um, investor side and you know all these all these companies are trying to get um, get funding to cover costs until they have a drug that's marketable or, or a technology. So all of that money comes from venture capital. And so I kind of learned that world for a while. Um, and then, in March, when everything went um, to uh, remote work, I was, things were slowing down a little bit um, business-wise. And so I started looking to go to more of the medical side, which is what I wanted from the first place, to be honest. Um, and now I'm a medical science liaison um, working um, in support of an epilepsy drug. And I'm happy to talk about um, any, any bits of that, but that's kind of um, how, where I've gone since grad school and, and, and yeah, how I got to where I am now. Okay. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit more about what a medical science liaison means? Sure. So I think um, the most general um, explanation, and there's a lot to it, and there's a lot of different ways that a medical science liaison or MSL can be um, used, but the most general way is to say that you're a scientist who can talk about a product 
not tied to the label on the product. So every drug that's out there has a very specific label. Um, it's that is the indication that it's used for. So if you think of just uh, something like, you know, insulin, insulin is used to control blood sugar. It's not used for cancer. So it's label is for blood sugar control, not for cancer. So, um, you know, that's kind of an obvious example, but um, what, a, what an MSL can do is field questions from physicians who are prescribers and discuss the feasibility or the um, utility of using drugs in ways that are not tied very specifically to the label. Mm -hmm. Whereas a sales rep um, can only talk about the drug to the label. And the reason all of that is, is because there's sort of ethical interests in mind. Um, the, you know, our society, we don't, we don't want anyone promoting a drug off label because that could be dangerous. And so a, a medical science liaison is completely non-promotional, but it's someone who understands the clinical data and can say, well, you know, we, we did use, uh, or we did see some evidence of, of this, but its indication is really specifically for, you know, indication X, and that's what we recommend it for. But, but we can sort of help the physician come to a conclusion based on our knowledge of the data. Um, I hope that that makes sense as an answer. Yeah. So, are you still working with data a lot in your? Very much so. So okay. the the biggest difference is that it went from basic science data to to all uh, clinical trial data. Um, so understanding, um, the assessments that are used and the clinical endpoints that are important is key to being able to, to do the job effectively, because as you know, every test has its limitations. Every test is supposed to be a, a surrogate for some real world important measure. And it's not always a perfect reflection of that measure, right? So if we're trying to measure something like um, somnolence or the, you know, how, how much a drug makes you uh, sleepy, there are scales for that. There are, you know, clinical scales like the Stanford sleepiness scale. Um, and so understanding that kind of an assessment and knowing where its weaknesses are and where its strengths are um, is really important. Just as, you know, someone like yourself, um, when you're doing reward devaluation, you understand, you know, there are there are parts of reward devaluation that are, you know, very specific to, um, to the test and that, that are related to, you know, whether something is a, a habit or not. Um, and, and whether that, you know, if something is resistant to reward devaluation, does that really mean that it's uh, a habit? Mm -hmm. And just those kinds of definitions become really important uh, in clinical science, just as they are in, in basic science. Okay, that, that's uh, that's interesting. So it's actually it's a little more research oriented than I would have thought. Um, how closely would you say that this this the stuff you're doing now relates to kind of your neuroscience background? Um, that's a great question. It, it is a transition for sure. Um, my um, my research work in my dissertation was 
was focused on a specific brain area, um, the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus, which happens to be an area of the brain that is um, very crit that's critical in epilepsy, um, specifically one type of ep epilepsy, temporal lobe epilepsy. Um, so having that basis is good. Um, also having my basis in neurophysiology, as you know, I was an electrophysiologist. And so having that background where you have a sort of conceptual knowledge of um, the electrical activity of the brain, um, both from a single cell level and from a network level, um, is really helpful in understanding the pathophysiology of the disease. That's less than half of it. Um, because as I was saying, the clinical work is all these other things that happen to be, um, you know, much more essentially behavioral, you know, you have humans that are behaving in some way, um, and their reaction to a drug, some, something like somnolence that I was mentioning. Um, so there's, there's a lot to learn on the clinical side for me. Um, but at least I have a I think a pretty strong understanding of how the drugs are working um, to change the physiology of the brain to um, hopefully stop seizures from happening, mm -hmm. um, such as, you know, is, is the point of an anti-epileptic drug. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, that's, um, uh, that's really helpful to understand. So, um, another question that I had was um, kind of a, well, how much in your job are you, so you're, you're not actually doing any experiments or any, um, you're not collecting the data at all. You're just on the analysis side of things. Yeah, so I mean, I'm not doing that much of the analysis okay. of our own data either. It's kind of more keeping a finger on the pulse of what is going on in the world of epilepsy. Mm -hmm. um, Are you still you're still expected to be reading um, current scientific publications and definitely being able and to communicate that to other people? Definitely, and and attending conferences, and though, okay. though that's a, a virtual experience these days. I um, attended the uh, North American Epilepsy Congress two weeks ago mm -hmm. and, you know, listened to 20 or 30 talks um, on a wide range of topics covering epilepsy. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's the, the people who would be analyzing our own data for, you know, the actual decision-making would be in clinical development. Okay. Um, and so we kind of have a, a foot in that area and it's, it's maybe a bigger conversation than, than that specific question, but yeah, so I don't, I don't do very much in the way of, of, you know, looking at our own data and, and trying to make decisions based on that, but more, more the broad scale of how does our own data fit into the landscape, um, that is, um, you know, that is the epilepsy space right now. Okay. So it actually sounds like your, um, your work as a graduate student kind of did a pretty good job of preparing you for the kinds of things that you're doing now. Yeah, I think um, in, a, in a roundabout way, I think it did. And I don't know that there's any real like, 
great way to prepare specifically for this type of job mm-hmm. because every job, every, every MSL job is different. Um, you know, if, if I had wanted to go into um, a different, so supporting a, a different kind of product, then a different background might, may have been a little bit more helpful. Um, so your friend and mine, Scott Sheppers, is um, he works on a on a behavior a cognitive behavioral therapy um, tool as an MSL as well, mm-hmm. and so his background would happen to be very strong for that, um, being from coming from the from the Bowton Lab and and thinking about behavior for for all that time. Um, my neurophysiology background happened to fit pretty well with epilepsy, even though I didn't study epilepsy directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that there are, there are other ways that if, if I had gone into more of a psych um, drug space, um, such as you know, bipolar disorder or, or depression, um, I think that there would have been other things about my training that I would have applied. Um, but overall, yeah, I, I, think, I think one of the great things that my, my training um, did for me was, was to help me think intuitively um, as an experimenter. And you're always thinking about even, you know, so much of our meetings feel like a, a journal club type thing or mm-hmm. like a, a cluster meeting, like, like you and I used to be in all the time mm-hmm. where we're just, we're, we're diagnosing a paper and what are the strengths and weaknesses. And instead of this is all going to support a theory that, um, you know, some, a uh, famous researcher is putting together, it's going to support a drug. And, you know, we need to know how our drug, what, what our drug has in terms of strengths and weaknesses. And we need to know how the competition fits into that so that we understand where our drug can best be used and the population that it can most benefit. And then also be honest about things where our competition might uh, fit better Mm-hmm. and might be more effective in a certain population. And one of the nice things about my job is I don't have to sell anything. And if I'm speaking to a doctor and they say, you know, do you think that your product would be good for here? And I don't know. I mean, I actually could see another product maybe working more effectively mm-hmm. in this case. If you, if you look at their data um, versus ours, it's not a great head to head, but um, I could certainly see why someone would choose product X over product Y, even if uh, the drug I'm supporting is product Y. So it's nice to not feel that pressure to have to sell anything. And that's one of the great things about my job now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that's one of the kind of, one of the stressful parts about doing research is the need to sell your data and the need to kind of, you know, you you end up convincing yourself that, things are the way they are for certain reasons and not for, for other reasons. It can be um, very stressful, kind of like um, challenging to your character to try to be as honest as you can about data. Um, is that kind of one of the things that um, you prefer now about what you do compared to what you did in graduate school? the way you allowed to interpret and be honest about your data? Um, well, 
I think that I always was pretty brutally honest about my data. I never thought that it was anything groundbreaking or um, <laughs> or something that was going to change the world in any way. Um, I guess there, but there is an ownership of of your data, and if you ever feel that. Um, you know, if someone were to question in, in, in graduate school context, I'm saying if someone were to question whether you use the right test for something or um, that you designed an experiment incorrectly, there's a certain amount of um, personal accountability that that would probably lead you to have a slightly more defensive response. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I in, in, in now in the context of my current job, um, if this was my company's, you know, like I founded this company and it was my baby for years and years, I would imagine that I'd have a pretty similar response to what I just just described as the graduate school experience. And probably even more so because you have a whole lot of um, assets tied up in the Mm -hmm. company. But in my position now, um, you know, I don't really feel a responsibility to, um, you know, to sell anything. It's just the data is what the data is. And my job is to be a resource. And I feel lucky because the product that I'm supporting, I think does have a lot of utility and has a lot of people that can help. And I think that it has obvious strengths that the data supports over some of the competition. So I have no problem saying, that you know this, this is our data, and this is how it stacks up in a, you know, not a complete, not a f- completely fair apples to apples head to head comparison, but you know we have to have our our ability to interpret things professionally. Um, so so yeah, I think that there is a little bit more um, freedom to not feel quite so tied into this one theory. Um, but I could certainly imagine that if I am, you know, with this company for years and really get tied up and become passionate about the project that you end up probably in the same place. Um, so it's, it's a great question and it's, but I think it's also, I think your question speaks to your insight that, um, academia isn't an unbiased place, um, that, selling a story is actually pretty similar to selling a product. And um, I think that that's no secret to academicians, um, but it is, I think, a secret to many people who who are viewing things from the outside. So um, I think that maybe I'm I'm a little bit defensive of it because I'm now, I am now part of I wouldn't necessarily say big pharma because we're a small company, but pharma. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, to be honest, I, I think I, I see in a lot of ways a lot uh, less bias in this area than I did in academia because wow. it's such small potatoes in academia at the end of the day. You're not going to, if you mm-hmm. sell bad data, no one's going to get hurt. No one's going to, um, no one's going to yeah, die from that. Theoretically. <laughs> Right. It would, it would take a whole lot of, of ignorance and incompetence for that to happen. Mm-hmm. But, um, but that, if you sell bad data, um, people are going to die. People are going to lose their jobs. 
um, and it would it would be a real problem. So mm -hmm. um, there's actually a lot more pressure to be honest on on this side, I think, especially when it comes to sort of the small things that people might be tempted to get away with mm -hmm. in uh, in academic research. Yeah, I, I would say to um to what you just said, you know, at the um at least with both my research, um, <laughs> kind of the way I like look at it when I kind of get frustrated and need to um, justify something to myself is that, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it's whether or not a rat pressed a lever. It's <laughs> ultimately not that big of a deal. Um, right. You know, unless, you, you know, I'm, it's, it is a big deal to some people. It's certainly a big deal to my, to my advisor, who's, you know, extremely passionate about what he does. Um, and I, I could definitely see how it's easier to become passionate about producing a drug that helps people with epilepsy than it is to be passionate about whether a rat presses a lever or whether, um, certain cells in the dentate gyrus respond to certain stimuli. Right. With, with research, you're really trying to focus in on such small things. And what, one thing I, I try to tell myself and have to tell, you know, remind, remind myself and remind colleagues, you know, you can't base your happiness on the, the results of, of these experiments because you really can become so entrenched in the experiments going the way you want that when it doesn't, it, uh, it, it drives you a little crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the, the big problem is you never know, not never, but you, there's always uncertainty as to whether your null results were the, were the product of that's just the way life is mm -hmm. or that some mistake was made. Right. And yeah. And that, that self-doubt is always the question. And that's why it's when you have sort of a finicky um, effect that you're playing with in your, um, in your work, it can be, it can drive you crazy for mm -hmm. certain, for sure. Yeah. Um, but I, I think as, as you say, like the longer you stay in something, the more you get invested in a certain uh, perspective and then that perspective often becomes part of your identity. Mm -hmm. And then when someone questions it, they're not just questioning the theory, they're questioning your identity, Yeah, which is um, a much more challenging thing to handle personally from uh, psychologically from a, on a personal level. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of fascinating to see how acad academia um, can be just as corruptive as, as, uh, as, the, as things that are actually a, a cash business. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a different kind of currency. Yeah. Um, so I, one other question I wanted to ask you is, um, you always seemed pretty set on the fact that you didn't want to go into academia, that you wanted to go into, um, into the private sector, something mm -hmm. not directly academic. Um, when do you think you realized that? And when do you think, and what kind of influenced you in that decision? 
Um, there's, I, I can't say that I like made that decision a single time uh -huh. and then was, was decided from that point on. It's, uh, I think for any, everyone, it's a it's journey. And I think almost everyone at some point in their career, whether they came into graduate school thinking that they were going to go into industry or they came into graduate school thinking that they were going to go uh, stay in academia, they flip-flop. Um, <laughs> I think it's easier to see the other side from some areas. So if you're in like the department of pharmacology, I think it's really, really easy to see the industry side and the applicability of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're in, um, honestly, more like where I was or where you are, it's a little harder to see. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, I'm not sure that, I know that that's, that's a little bit of a extensive preamble, um, but I would say I slowly turned um, from being mostly interested in academia to mostly interested in industry um, between year three and year five. Um, and I really loved teaching. There were parts of teaching that I um, thought maybe, maybe academia is where I want to be. Um, you know, I would leave a class that went really well and the students were really engaged and I would be like, this is what, this is it. This is what I'm doing. Um, but then there would be sort of the, I would kind of look at the path of what it would take to, um, to stick it out in academia, you know, another five years as a postdoc. And then the sort of, um, trying to, find the right position in the right part of the country and it yeah happening to match up with when you got your bridging funding to start your own lab and everything and that just seemed like such a roll of the dice of uncertainty that it was that made me very uncomfortable when there are other things in my life that I'm um I wouldn't say more interested in than, oh yeah, there are other things in my life that I am more interested in than just my job. And, and I think um, the reality is, is that in academia, there is a singular focus that, um, that a lot of folks have. Um, and, and the well-rounded piece is, um, is harder and harder to, um, to maintain and, and, and be a, um, and, and be an academic. And that's not to say that people don't do it. Uh, I cer certainly, my advisor is a really, really well-rounded person. Um, and I just, I think maybe I'm just not smart enough to, uh, to be able to excel in, in the specific area and also keep up, uh, all the other things that I am interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's, a I, I, it's hard to say when it actually happened, but um, when I think I finally grasped the, the gravity of, um, do I really want to be doing this for another five years? Um, it, that was kind of when, when the decision felt like it was even made for me. It wasn't even my decision to make at that point. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that's something um, I've been thinking about on and off a lot 
Um, still haven't come to a decision, could still go either way. Um, <laughs> I, I think I'm kind of a little bit in like the survival mode of grad school right now, um, where like oh. the dissertation seems so big and overwhelming that like until, you know, I kind of get that going, I can't even really think about other things. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with, with being undecided. I think um, there's, you just, just need to, I mean, there's no secret to it. It's just recognizing what your priorities are and what are the things that make you happy. For, for me personally, um, where I, what part of the country I was in was really important to me. Mm -hmm. And um, the type of town and the people I lived around was really important to me. And it's so hard to find uh, the right position at the right time in academia mm -hmm. um, that it just was like, I'm not sure that, that the, you know, what the, on the other side of the rainbow is even going to be what I actually want. So do I want to sink another four or five, six years into it, not knowing? Yeah. I think I could have done it knowing that there, that's on the other side, but as it is now, <laughs> Sorry. No, I mean, you know, it, it's easy to do things when you know and you're certain about well, it. Well, yeah, and there's a, um, it still you, you'd be sacrificing um, quite a lot financially to mm -hmm. go into a postdoc. Um, you know, a postdoc salary is still, you know, around $50,000 a year, which for, for someone who's in their 30s, that's not at, at that level of education, it's not that substantial. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that is still a sacrifice to not be not be trifled um, with, but um, but yeah, still you feel like you can do it if if there's some kind of certainty on the other side. Whereas um, you know you can kind of find your other place. And now it's uh, I mean I feel extraordinarily lucky. I, I have a really really great job. I work remotely. I can. Um, our plan is actually to move back to Vermont um, next summer, probably, really? um, because wow. my region's New England, so I can mm -hmm. work in New England, and I just need to be able to travel a little bit on like okay. a day trip kind of thing. New Jersey, so, not uh, not in the cards. <laughs> um, I'm not sure where uh, how much how much we've uh, smack talked in New Jersey on the Steinfeld podcast, but uh, uh, not very much. I think, uh, well. Let, let's see. No, every guest I've had on. Um, no, not every guest. Sorry. 99% uh, of the guests I've had on either live, currently live in New Jersey or have lived in New Jersey for long periods of time. The roots run deep. So it's it's been a very Jersey heavy podcast thus far. And yep. Yep. I guess I'm, I'm not deviating from the, from that uh, in this podcast yeah. <laughs> either. Yeah. Well, I haven't lived there full time since 2008, so it's been a while, but uh, it's, listen, I had a very great childhood um, and a great supportive family, but it's it's not the place where I am going mm -hmm. to choose to raise my own family. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, no, I I would prefer the uh, the wide open spaces of, of uh, the Green Mountain State, personally. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
So, um, yes, uh, since your, your family came up a little bit, I kind of wanted to ask, um, is your dad still coaching football this season? He is not this season. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if I, he got very sick last year uh-huh. and, um, he was in the hospital for about two months, uh, with, with a, uh, very bad bacterial infection. And then, um, he, he had some follow-up surgeries that got delayed and, uh, so we couldn't couldn't do this year, and, and it wasn't the worst year to take off since, um, you know, being 68 years old and being exposed to too many people on a daily basis is inadvisable. So he decided to take the year off, and, and I think he's he's going to try to coach in some respect next year if things are looking better from a public health perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so actually, I wanted to maybe dive a little deeper into that. So just to, can you just uh, give the listeners some context as to, um, you know, your, who your dad, what dad is, and, you know, your relationship with him and your relationship with, um, you know, football in general? Sure. Um, My dad has been the head high school football coach at um, my high school, Ridgewood in New Jersey since 1984. Um, and he, so he's been there quite a while since, you know, four years before I was born even. Um, and so I grew up loving football, playing football. Um, I played quarterback there for three years for him. Um, and then I played at Williams college, um, from 2008 to 2012. Uh, 2011, I guess. Um, and I'm still a huge football fan. So that's the, uh, and then my dad is, you know, one of the most, has one of the most wins, probably top five or 10 most wins in New Jersey high school football history, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been around a while. Yeah. So kind of the question I kind of ultimately wanted to ask is, um, do you think, what, 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 do you think kids should be playing sports right now? Do you think that's uh, that's advisable, or do you think the the downside of not having kids in sports outweighs the potential benefits? Because there's definitely a lot of downsides to kids not being able to to play sports and do their regular extracurricular activities. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is all from a pandemic perspective. You're yeah, asking. Yeah. I, I would say that's. Do you that's think an... it should be able to play sports at all? I have I have no idea. Okay. Um, I I can't. I, I have no strong opinion. Um, I can certainly see both sides, and yeah, I, I can't. Uh, that's not that's not trying to dodge a question. I just don't know. Mm-hmm. I wish I did. Okay. Has your um has your dad voiced any opinions about it to you? Um. He's. Not, not really. No, he, he's not, he's not very opinionated on that subject either. I think, okay. I think we both, um, to some extent, I mean, you know, I, I probably watched four hours of college football yesterday. Um, <laughs> to some extent, there's a right here and now sense of normalcy that is extraordinarily tempting. Um, and so I don't, but but that doesn't just because I participate in that now doesn't mean that I think it's a good idea because because I just don't know but it's but it's happening and um, I think that the kids are, who are out there certainly no one's forcing them to do it so mm-hmm. 
and I think I think that they're really happy to be able to be doing it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that might have repercussions down the road, and I and I just am completely unqualified to <laughs> to have an opinion as to what those are. But but empirically, we'll see. You know, yeah. I, obviously, it's 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 fingers crossed. Yeah, um, um, I, I think that. on the one hand, you know schools have been doing it. I live right around the corner from South Burlington High School and I've, I've seen the kids out there playing football and um, like little league baseball or soccer games. Um, and, you know, things are pretty good up here in Vermont. Um, yeah. You know, around the country though, there are still a lot of places where cases are on the rise. And, um, you know, I think maybe the, the outdoor sports are a little better. I think it gets yeah. a lot dicier when you get into winter and you start having the indoor sports and you combine that with the cold weather. Um, you know, you, you, just, you just have no idea. And, you know, I think back and think like if my senior wrestling season was taken away from me, like I would have been really, really upset. Um, and I, yeah. I, I imagine you would have felt similar about your, your senior season playing football yeah yeah well yeah i guess i actually did have my senior college season taken away from me from an for by an injury oh yes um to some extent that might have been harder to deal with just because i had to watch everyone else participate Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) but uh but this i you know i i know that um new jersey kicked off last weekend with their high school football season and i guess all sports and i was just happy that those kids at least got you know now two games um mm-hmm. just uh, i hope that a lot of kids get to play i hope that it's not a um you know it, it, it's just a different season from any other obviously you still want to be competitive and trying to win the games is still mm-hmm. important to me um but I hope that, you know, some of the, uh, the kids who might have otherwise been bench warmers can get on the field a little bit and just get to experience it because it's a fleeting time in your life. And it's, uh, I just, if, if they're doing the games, then I hope, I hope a lot of kids get to get on the field because I think yeah. it's, it's a great memory in your life. Um, but I sense that you also wanted to ask about another aspect of that, maybe a complicated relationship with football is that, um, um, I mean, I wasn't getting at that. If you want to bring it up, um, I, I'm definitely interested to hear what you've got to say. Well, again, I would say that I don't have a strong opinion. All I would say is that there are a lot of, um, of course, we're, we're referring to um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. Oh, yes. Um, and I... Uh, my sort of somewhat unique, unique, not, not, um, not literally, but colloquially, um, perspective on that is that there are not that many former college football players with PhDs in neuroscience, um, who have both the perspective of having played defensive line in college and, um, know what a, uh, know the neurophysiology of uh, specific subpopulations of, uh, of central nervous system neurons. So it's a, a little bit of a unique perspective. Um, I 
have examined that research to some extent. No, I'm not an expert by any means. Um, I find it to be uh, concerning, but also inconclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people out there who um, are, re- are comparing that response to um, the tobacco industry of the 90s when they said the evidence is inconclusive. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be a, um, I find that to be such a stupid argument um, that it's almost not even worth acknowledging because there is not one good bit of smoking to smoking. There's not a single good thing to that. So someone defending that, I'm not sure. To me, all, all you have to know about smoking cigarettes is that it smells terrible, so you probably shouldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> that it causes cancer is, uh, is, is, is just, you know, it's an added bonus. The best piece of evidence to not do it mm-hmm. when there was already pretty good evidence to not do it. Um, so the doubt, um, the, the casting of doubt that, that some people are comparing to the tobacco industry, I just find to be um, dishonest and unfair uh, mm-hmm. because I think that there are a ton of great things to contact sports, not just football, uh, hockey, lacrosse, um, think wrestling to some extent rugby um and i find that the evidence is is very incomplete and um and i think also has some of those same things that we talked about in the beginning of the show um where some people have derived their identity from this line of research and there are there are a number of specific people um that i have in mind who are now on speaking circuits and who are paid thousands of dollars to talk about their research. And I um, am very uncomfortable with that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, that you, you can have. say their names if you'd like. Um, That's okay. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't have a very big following. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's mostly my parents. <laughs> That's uh, I know, but uh, uh so I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that relationship that, okay. um, that those researchers have with, with their subject area. And mm-hmm. um, to some extent, they should know better, but it's also just tempting. And I understand the, the human temptation. And it's, it's one of the problems with academia is when you sort of find the golden goose that you're working on, you have to keep writing that and keep writing grants for that same topic because that's what you're an expert in now yeah and it kind of stinks because you know if you want to change tact and go research something else it's hard to do it because you're not an expert in that and they say oh you're you know you're mid-career why would you want to do that why would you Mm -hmm. want to change subject now well there shouldn't be any reason you should be able to do it if you want to you should be able to you know change change subjects if you want to do it um but but so those are that's what some of those people are doing, and it's um, it. I think that there are some higher quality studies that show very little effect of to to actually an undetectable effect of playing at least high school level of mm-hmm. uh, of football, and um, we could we could even put those in the show notes if you want. 
Okay. But, yeah. So send um, some links. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I mean, I to some extent, I almost wonder how it's even possible to play NFL football and not have some amount of brain damage. No, I, yeah. Um, just kind of backing up a little bit and speaking to the, you know, what you kind of characterize as, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me if this is incorrect, the maybe over-exaggeration of the dangers of youth and high school football to the, to the brain. I mean, I, I totally understand, like, any time a red flag is raised about children's brains, like, you know, parents have a complete right to, you know, get upset and to want to know more about that. And, you know, it should absolutely be researched and be understood. Um, but, you know, I, I think to getting to what you're, you were saying, you know, to profit off of what ultimately might be a, a scare tactic based on bad research is, um, that would be pretty unethical. So, you know, if, if that is the case, if these people you're referencing are going around and making these grand conclusions on research that they might not even believe that that's, that's a, that's a big issue. Yeah. And, and to be fair, um, I would say that their invested, their vested interest is, is probably completely dwarfed by the vested interest of the people um, in the national football league. <laughs> so, so we should at least acknowledge that, but but on a personal level, I think it is pretty important that, you know, there are some people who this is the research that they're putting out. And um, and I should actually be a little more fair to some of these folks because I've actually heard a few of them speak and I've heard um, what the media has done to their conclusions is, is also sort of... Um, they, they've butchered those conclusions and they've yeah. well, that's much um, stronger conclusions than the researchers themselves. Yeah. And that's an entire yeah. area in, in and of itself, just how the media handles scientific publications. And well, yeah. it, it, it's even bigger than that because the media is so incentivized for, to have these sensationalist uh, topics that draw people yeah. in and, you know, brain brain damage in kid in kids is something that is definitely going to draw people in. Yep. And yep. you know, they're driven by their own financial incentives too. You know, at the, at the end of the day, that these are all just human beings making decisions that they think are um, going to improve their lives, and it's it, it's very hard to fault people for that. Ultimately, when you know. We're, we're all human beings and we know how we're driven in yeah. certain directions by reinforcers and punishments. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's something I, I think a, a decent amount about, you know, the implications of my own research and, you know, do, do we have free will or are we uh, <laughs> driven by cues and reinforcers and yada, yada, yada. Um, but yeah. I, I kind of wanted to ask a little bit about what it was like to play high school for your dad, because I, I have my own um, perspective on this. My dad was never my formal wrestling coach, but he was always kind of the most formative 
and influential coach I had, but your dad was also the head coach of your football team. So what, what was that like that? I imagine that was a lot of pressure. Um, you know, I, it's hard to say because I don't, I don't have the other side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I didn't not play for my dad yeah. in high school. So I don't, I don't have a great head to head. Um, you know, I, uh, <laughs> One, one thing I, I say to people that I'm sure you'll understand this, but it drives people crazy when they're like, oh, you know, was that experience good for you? Was it bad for you? I don't know. I didn't have a control group. <laughs> it's, it's impossible to tell. I don't have the perspective of me in an alternate universe where everything else was controlled to be the exact same. <laughs> that is, that is a, well set, a well-made point there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I... I think maybe I, there were some ways in which I um, made football more important than it ultimately was because I, because it was so invested because, you know, it was part of my family growing up. I mean, I was watching those games from the sidelines as a water boy since I was in kindergarten. (laughs) Um, And, and it was, you know, looking up to those guys as like, as, as just heroes to me as, as a little kid. Um, so, so I don't know. I mean, it, he was a little harder on me than he was any of the other, uh, players. So just to sort of overcorrect for Mm -hmm. any, um, view from, from the outside that, um, that he was playing any favorite. Um, but so I think in, in that sense, that was, probably a good thing, you know, um, from a personal accountability perspective. Um, but it's hard to say, it's hard to say what, what life would have been like otherwise, because then, you know, that had already happened by the time I went to college and, you know, didn't have anyone who already knew me as, as my head, as my coach or, and, um, so it's, it's very hard to say, but it's a, it's an interesting question. I think, there's just so much more to it than just having that as, uh, as your head coach. It's, it's cause the other side of it is you lived with it the whole time. So it would have been, mm-hmm. um, it's like, a, it, it, it would have been weird to not have him as, as my head coach because, cause I grew up with so much invested in it. It almost probably would have felt like a letdown to not have him as my head coach. That's mm-hmm. uh that's really interesting. Um, was your, was your dad good about, um, you know, when you were outside of football practice and outside of games, you know, the, he went from being coach to being dad. It wasn't all uh, offense and defense at the dinner table, or was he kind of, when it was football season, was he kind of on all the time? That's a good question. I don't really remember. Um, I don't ever remember being, um, having like a fight with him about that or anything like that. I, I think it was just kind of a, um, that was kind of what I was into anyway. So mm-hmm. like, if we want, if we were talking about football, like that's probably what I would be talking about okay. as a senior in high school, as an 18 year old, you know, that's just, mm-hmm. that was kind of where my, where my focus was. Uh, Cause it was so, it's such a public thing, you know, like mm-hmm. um, it's kind of like you're, you're going to give us be up and give a speech every weekend or something like in front of the whole town. I mean, especially. Yeah. Yeah. To some extent it's like, um, 
you know, now I, you know, I, haven't, I haven't given a live presentation, but I've given a number of, of Zoom presentations and like you really look forward to that. And, um, you know, similar to how, how it is in grad school where you give a talk at the, uh, or in some people's uh, cases, award-winning talks. Short um, time. <laughs> um, I, well, referring to yourself, I believe you did win. win I, t- and, uh, no, I tied. Okay. Yeah. I'll I'll have uh, to get Nick on here at some point to. uh... (laughs) Yeah, you guys can fight it out. Yeah. (laughs) So, so, you know, you're building up to that. It's like, it's almost hard to, um, you know, if if you're building up to performing in front of a few thousand people every weekend, it's hard to not make that the focus of your, um, of what you're doing, you Mm -hmm. know, compared to a, math test that you're only going to see the answer that you're only you're the only one who's going to see the score Mm -hmm. um and and yeah maybe if maybe if my math scores were um were public knowledge i would have put a little more effort into that in high school (laughs) one thing that i've uh i've realized about myself is um when i look back to my life as a high schooler and I look at what I could have improved upon, um, it's not grades, it's not um, time with my friends, it's not, um, you know, going out and doing charity work, it's not girls that I should have asked out, it's usually related to wrestling, which I've realized is a very kind of odd thing. And I, I think I was kind of in the in a similar position that you were where a lot of myself was invested in my success as a wrestler and you know I think a lot of that came from I got probably I got more positive reinforcement from people around me for winning wrestling matches than I did for my you know my grades or other things like my my parents were never you know, I I think they were, my mom, especially like she, you know, she didn't care about wrestling. So, you know, as long as I was happy, I was happy. My dad was much more invested. Um, But it's, it's very weird how as a, you know, a 15 through 18 year old kid, your performance in a physical activity can kind of take over your life. (laughs) Yes. I think it maybe would have been good if an adult maybe sat me down and reminded me, you know, it's, it's just a sport. I'm sure my parents try to do that. And I just, I didn't listen to them. (laughs) Yeah. And, but you know, now that you're an adult, you see that. So it's, it's not like you, I mean, yes, you're having these thoughts, but you're not, you're not thinking about how, um, you're not still thinking about how you could be a better wrestler now. Like you're just thinking about back then, like, I, oh, you know, I, I could have uh, lifted weights a little more yeah. or eaten a little better. Like, and, you know, maybe I would have won that, that last, you know, match that I lost like seven, eight or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like a real uh, no, I, uh, I definitely think about those matches that I, I wish I had had back. I, I think rest, there's a, just a really personal element about wrestling where it's that 
guy beat me, not like yep. that team beat my team. Like that guy beat me and everyone saw that guy beat me. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a very you know, personal element to it. I can certainly, I can only imagine because mm-hmm. um, I, didn't, I didn't participate in wrestling, um, but I think you're probably exactly right. And I also think that um, it's to some extent um, since since it's really the only time you get to participate in that stuff is high school, uh, you know, obviously or in, up through college, you know, the, mm-hmm. the percentage of people who end up playing as professionally is so so very very small. Um, that's kind of just the experience that most people have to relate to it is, is like their, their high school days. And like, um, so like, that's actually kind of like the ultimate um, experience of athletics is high school mm-hmm. um, that most people have. And, and at the end of the day, like mathematics or history or, um, or some, you know, school subject you're really playing at a, at a childlike level um, in high school. Um, you know, I think about the, the content of my science classes or my history classes in, in high school, and it's, and it's really pretty childlike um, compared to, I think, what, um, what I know now and what a lot of adults know now. Whereas, you know, well, I, I think there's a, also a lot of adults that would uh, look at a high school math test and, um... You know, it would just be Greek to them. You're probably right, but it, I think they have the ability if they wanted to um, to go back and and, and figure it out. But um, compared to the athletics, where like that is still kind of in some ways like the best wrestler you might have been was maybe mm-hmm. when you were 18 years old, and and I, I don't know how far you got wrestling in districts or regionals or something, <laughs> um, and and so like, that's kind of the, the peak of your life in athletics, whereas intellectually, you're not at the peak of your life in high school. Yeah. You're, you're closer to the peak of uh, your intellectual life and you're, you're continually getting closer to it, you know? Yeah. But I, I wonder how, um, how tempting it is as, um, as a father or a coach to invest your self um in your child's wins and losses mm-hmm. um at some point i realized i'm gonna have to have my dad back on here and we're gonna have to have a full like retrospective dissection of <laughs> uh, of both of our wrestling careers and you know kind of n- talk about my wrestling career through his perspective mm-hmm. to get like a better understanding of like what it was like to be, you know, cause he was really invested and he put a lot of time into my wrestling success and, you know, what it was like for him to watch me both win and lose. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't know if you've ever had that kind of breakdown with your dad. Um, I don't well, know did, if it's going to be good or bad. <laughs> did you, did you feel like um, he was, making you do things you didn't want to do in high school? Um, no. Or, or leading up I, to 
No, I, I don't think so. Um, you know, I definitely think like I felt an added pressure because of him. And I think with my younger brother, both me and my dad tried to push him into wrestling more than we should have. And it kind of backfired. Um, you know, so we did have that experience as well, but no, I honestly was probably the person that made the bigger deal over like the small things than him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think I, I would echo that from my own perspective, um, is that it was, it was always my choice and it was always, um, a huge deal for me to be putting as much time and effort into uh, sports as I did. But as I said, like, that was just, that was the thing that I was doing on a public stage. So it was, it was very easy to feel the fear of, of not performing well yeah. compared to any fear of, of not performing well in a, in an academic sense. And, and for me, so it's what out. you're saying we should make children's grades, public knowledge to the entire <laughs> town. <laughs> and would we, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if China did that. Right. Well, <laughs> I, um, I'm sure that there are cultural differences, um, in what is valued, um, from, a, you know, I, I think if you go to a, um, a barbecue in New Jersey of, uh, you know, a bunch of New Jersey Italians and, you know, uh, Anthony, the, your cousin who's a senior <laughs> in high school is, uh, the all-state quarterback and, uh, Joey is the guy with straight A's. I think it's very clear which one of those two cousins you're, mm -hmm. is the one with more status yeah. at that family barbecue. And I think that there are probably other cultures where there are other attributes that are the status driving attributes. Do you have an opinion on why, um, why Americans are so kind of obsessed with sports and giving high status to good, good athletes kind of mainly at a, a high school level we could maybe get more into a professional level but um yeah mainly i i kind of think it might be good to focus at the youth level for this I don't, yeah yeah the youth sport thing is i mean first of all i don't know much about what's going on in other countries i mean you certainly mm -hmm. hear about wild fans in <laughs> uh, you know in in soccer in, in yeah. europe um so and i also hear about like these soccer schools that kids get kind of brought into when they they're, they're identified as having talent at like six mm -hmm. or seven years old yeah or i, I mean, think probably an, an issue with uh, with that with um young girls and gymnastics and you know one, one of the crazier ones is skiing really? um they'll identify those kids at like you know three years old um and they'll be in ski school from it's, it's pretty crazy um but yeah so i don't i don't really know how our how our culture compares mm -hmm. um that's the deep question though why um why western society puts such value on 
physical performance. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's a Western thing I'm, uh, or, or not, but I think that's a anthropological, sociological, and psychological question that could probably fill many books. Mm -hmm. Probably has already. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Many, many dissertations, many doctoral degrees have been fueled by that question. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, was, I don't know if we have an answer. <laughs> we have an answer, we obviously don't know it. Yeah, it's not public knowledge at this point. <laughs> Um, but yeah, who knows if there was some sort of a public display. I mean, I think, um, I think those things tend to just interact with someone's personality. Um, and if you have the type of per personality that responds well to criticism or to a public challenge, um, that, you know, publicly showcasing results, uh, can be a very good motivator. Mm -hmm. um, if you're the type of person who um, doesn't respond well to certain types of criticism, and that's not a value judgment, it's just saying there are some people who who take it more personally than than maybe they should, or or whatever. It or or maybe people don't take it personally enough when, who do respond well. I don't know, um, but yeah, I think I think. If you were to publicly post grades, then <laughs> there would be a, um, it would be a shakeup. I'm not sure if it would improve the median score or make the median score don't go down. Though. I think it would. I, I tend to think the um, psychological issues that would surround that would kind of <laughs> supersede right. any um, added bonus you get in. Right. Yeah, we might have a lot of extraordinarily anxious high-performing mathematicians. <laughs> I, I think, you know, one of the things we kind of have danced around here is, you know, we should be promoting well-roundedness in mm -hmm. kids. And so, you know, if you're a great athlete, but your grades suck, um, you know, that's not good. And if your grades are great, but you don't have any outside interests or your health is totally out of whack, you know, that's also bad. So, yep. yeah, I, I think, you know, they're, it, it's so easy to get over competitive in sports and to focus entirely on the winning. But I, I also think it's, and, and I think, you know, it is important to try your best and to try to win, but, you know, it's more important to keep in mind, like, you know, this is something that you should learn from. You should be able to bond with your teammates. You should get physical activity. Like, you know, w winning is almost kind of a, a side effect to the, to those things. I think that's exactly right. Winning is, uh, I think my dad has a, uh, um, little like plate on his desk that said, winning is not everything, but trying to win is because mm. all the things that you get from trying to win, you know, who cares what the final score was. If you put in all the effort in and you lose by a point, um, just because the other team scored two more points uh, to make the difference, shouldn't, shouldn't undervalue what you've done, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and especially from a, from a personal to team perspective, um, you know, to me, uh, like the way that some, 
professional players are judged by how many championships their teams have won makes as uh, so little sense um, because I mean you know for someone like uh, and you know I have my 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 personal struggles with one Thomas Brady mm-hmm. um, he played an amazing game against the Eagles a few years ago one of the best games I've ever seen him play and they lost mm-hmm. and like the fact that uh, I can't remember. Are you a giant fan? I'm, I'm primarily a Jets fan or for the giants. Uh, right now I'm trying to distance myself from those two teams as, as, much as, as much as possible. But the fact that like Tom Brady is judged for, uh, the fact that, you know, that David Tyree caught that one pass on his helmet mm-hmm. makes no sense. Tom Brady did enough to win that game just as he did enough to beat the Eagles. Um, it may, you know, he could have whatever two more two more Super Bowls than he does, but mm-hmm. uh, for some reason, people think. Or he could have two less. Yeah, it's. Yeah, if Adam Vinatieri also missed, weird too because it's you know it's one game you know as opposed to a whole series. Yep. If Adam Vinatieri misses a field goal, he has one less. You know. Yes. Yeah. Um, probably multiple field goals because I think they won more multiple Super Bowls on just a field goal, but. Yeah, it's it's just funny how how people's minds work. But I guess we're we're holding sports talk radio to a fairly high standard that we shouldn't be <laughs> when we make that criticism. I mean, hey, people people love sports and people love talking about Tom Brady, and you know, it's it's just it's so natural to want to compare, you know, who's the best and. Yeah. Most most people didn't play high school quarterback, and most people don't really know what they're looking at when they look at someone throwing a football. So you know, it, it's it's very easy to go to the quickest indicators. You know, one of those yeah. championship wins. Yeah, well, and that, and you know, Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith got to eat, so <laughs> <laughs> got to make sure they're employed. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, um, I haven't been really following football very much at all, but I'm, I'm disappointed that the Patriots aren't terrible. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are, but, um, well, they now have a massively more talented quarterback. So it's hard to, with significantly more COVID. Yes, that is true. Yeah. yeah. Typhoid cam, um, <laughs> But, but that's neither here nor there. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Greg, did you have any uh, other topics that you uh, wanted to make sure you got out there? Any shout outs that you wanted to give? Uh, well, I applaud you for, uh, for hosting a podcast, Michael. I, Thank I, you. Um, you know, our, our mutual friend, Hannah, alerted to me to this uh a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And um, as I, I, I look forward to seeing it evolve. Um, and, you know, I hope someday that you have um, one Mark Earhart Bouton on. Um, that's, uh, that's eventually the plan. Um, <laughs> maybe after you graduate. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> I think that could be a fun conversation, but I think uh, other, uh, I think you have multiple personalities and in the, 
in your just your building that would be interesting to interview and, and no they're, talk, they're definitely is. And I think I'm still getting over that um level of anxiety about asking people to do this because it's I don't know it's weird it feels very awkward to ask people hey will you have a conversation with me and I'm going to record it and put it on the internet <laughs> um so you know still trying to get over that I, I think I got over that with like um my friend group from home Mm -hmm. and um still still working on getting over that you know I I it's been um I think I've been doing this for about three months now and this is the 12th one I've done so I mean it's always good to be practicing your public speaking even though I guess this is sort of public and private at the same time yeah um because no matter what, that'll always serve you well. So, mm-hmm. and especially now when it's like you don't have that much interaction with people, yeah. um, it's it's just nice to see other people's faces and to, um, in our case, sort of catch up or, yeah. um, or just to go off on some random tangent. I mean, certainly uh, you and I had quite a lot of conversations in in our time together at Dewey that would be fun mm-hmm. to have recorded. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm thinking about just some of the, uh, you know, post-2016 election conversations and how yep. those would look now would be interesting. Yep. Do you want to make a, a quick prediction on the 2020 election so that if it's wrong, oh. I can say that you uh, right. made a prediction and it was incorrect? Um, <laughs> would you like I mean, to avoid I, that? <laughs> just we, we can certainly chalk that up as another thing that I am unqualified to have an opinion on. But my I've come private... to realize that a podcast is pretty much two people talking about things that they don't know enough to talk about. <laughs> yeah. So, my, my private opinion is that the... Not oh, private anymore. Of, right. Um, <laughs> well, I'm sharing my, my, my opinion. That's not a, um, at all an educated prediction. Uh, the most likely outcome is a close Biden win. The second most likely outcome is a big Biden win. And the third most likely outcome is a close Trump win. Um, from from my perspective, I think that's that's how it looks. But but you know, it, it'll always look a little weird because of the electoral college and mm-hmm. um, and because of twenty twenty and voting by mail and every who our president is and you know all all of those are weirdness yeah. factors as well. Yeah, and, and some, some scary things that, you know, I hope that there are no, you know, goons that are uh, patrolling polling places, because mm-hmm. that's a little bit of a scary reality. Um, and um, I have no problem in saying that I hope and pray for a Biden victory, because I'm very scared of the possibility of that idiot holding the reins of power for another four years mm-hmm. and, and I, that's again uh, another private opinion that i don't yeah. mind sharing because um I've, I've certainly never been this uneasy about the state of our country mm-hmm. i am um, i definitely want biden to win and I'm, I'm going to be voting for biden but uh in terms of potential democratic candidates i would say he was definitely not at the top of my list so mm-hmm. one thing I have thought about is, um, you know, if Biden does win the election. Um, 
it would behoove the Democratic the de Democrats for him to be president for eight years as opposed to four. Um, so we're kind of we're stuck with him for eight years, whereas if you know Trump gets another four, and then we have an election in four years, we could potentially have someone better in office in four years as opposed to in eight years. Mm -hmm. I think the urgency around getting Trump out of office kind of supersedes yes. that. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, that, that is just one thing I've considered. Yeah, um, I, I certainly understand that point because it's sort of a continuation of how I felt. You know, I kind of in some way had, had a, an interest in, in seeing, not a personal interest, but I was interested to see Trump, how Trump would do because I was not necessarily over the moon about a Hillary Clinton administration, but um, but I agree that there is such an urgency now that um, I would take nearly anybody, um, not and 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 that quite I do quite literally mean that because most people follow advice, most people ask for help when they're they know that they're out of their depth, and I'm not sure that um, that is something that occurs to the mind of. Uh, of this of this gentleman, so mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I am very concerned and very hopeful that um, that Joe Biden can can pull it out, and mm -hmm. um, I even even threw some cash his way, which is a first for me. Okay, all right, very very interesting. Um, all right, well, we've got a. What do we got? About twenty days until uh, all chaos breaks loose. And uh, hoping for not, but yes. <laughs> we'll see. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure Vermont will stay peaceful, and maybe we'll secede if uh, if they need to. And so in that case, I got to get back quickly. <laughs> I mean, we were our own country once. We can do it again. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Any uh, any shout outs you want to give? uh no real shout out maybe okay. just to the dewey fourth floor okay. Hi guys, i miss you all all right well uh you know hopefully they they listen to this and hear that all right, all right. Well, but greg thanks for thanks. coming on this has been a really awesome conversation i'd love to have you back anytime i would love to come back thank you for having me on mike all right well thank you for listening everyone <laughs>